This is David Colosi with another episode in the Knights of Philosophy series. In this lecture from the Knight of Philosophy in 2019 on October 5th and 6th from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. at the New School for Social Research in New York City, Professor of Philosophy at CUNY Graduate Center Charles W. Mills spoke at 1 a.m. on the topic of racial justice. Mills challenges the conventional, though ultimately misguided, hope that analytic philosophers and the tradition of Western philosophy have answers to large topics like justice with a capital J. Like everywhere else, analytic philosophy in the Western canon is flawed from the start by demographics. Just as the founding fathers of American democracy excluded slaves and women from freedom, so too did the founding fathers of analytic philosophy exclude most but the white northern European male from their grand conceptions of justice. The question for Mills is, is this flaw in the canon enough for a complete scrapping of the thought experiments? In his talk, the answer is no. He takes the critical theory approach of salvaging what he can from John Rawls's liberal democratic justice and tries to build a reformist and more equitable approach. Although his lecture was delivered in October of 2019, now in November 2020, while still in the throes of COVID-19 and continuing medical and police racial injustice, this subject matter remains urgent. My primary interest in resurfacing this talk from the point of view of philosophy is how does a discussion of racial justice from within the minds and walls of academia contribute to the protests in the streets? On the one hand, calls to defund and abolish the police continue to resonate up the avenues and from my own voice as I add it to the chorus of marchers. On the other hand, police departments and their apologists claim they can reform themselves. Do you know what public enemy is? Public enemy? Probably somebody in office. This polemic draws a question from an Audre Lorde adage. Is it possible to dismantle the master's house with the master's tools? The approach Charles Mills takes, even if it's only provisional, is that it is. By using the foundations of John Rawls's theory of justice, Mills suggests that gut-renovating it through a twist in the veil of ignorance and an adaptation toward ill-ordered societies can make the structure right. The protests in the streets disagree. Those in power have shown us time and again that they cannot and will never reform themselves. So do we renovate the current system or rebuild a new one with new tools? Having spent the summer and fall of 2020 protesting the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery, among so many others, I asked myself many times how and where the battle for racial justice can be fought and, if possible, won. I concluded that just as white supremacy corrupts everything, so too do we need to challenge it everywhere. 
and it will take varied approaches. All axe strikes contribute to bringing the monolith down. And it was in this thought that I had renewed interest to Charles Mills' approach to racial justice. Okay, guys, it's great that you're here and that you're awake even better. Um, I'm going to say, let's see what I can do to change that. That might give the wrong impression. Okay, so my topic is racial justice. And what I'm trying to do is basically pursue the very familiar critical theory project that, of course, most of you will know about considering where we're located. But doing it within a somewhat unusual framework of analytic philosophy, which is often seen as very hostile to read for such a project. Nonetheless, I've been soldiering on for some years now, those of you who might know whoever read my stuff, and um, I think that in principle, there's no reason why analytic philosophy should be antithetical to this project of you know, analyzing and ultimately overcoming social oppression. And I think it has more to do with the demography of the profession rather than any intrinsic features of analytic philosophy itself. So this paper is um, yet another installment in the ongoing project. I'm cheating slightly because it's been published already, but it does mean that for those of you who are interested, you can check it out. The details are given at the bottom. Um, okay, so we have a concept, racial justice, that's widely used in everyday discourse. Um, it appears in discussions of um, segregation that's residential, educational segregation, police killings of unarmed black men and women, um, environmental racism, so and so forth. But there's very little discussion of the concept within philosophy itself, particularly in um, mainstream analytic philosophy, which is supposed to be you know, where the action is. So philosophers like to think of themselves we're the go-to guys where justice is concerned. I don't think anybody else actually believes that, but we certainly do. So the, so the idea is, um, if you want some clarification on this topic, let's go to philosophy, and then you find philosophers don't have anything to say. So this is you know, my uh, attempt to sort of you know, repair this gap, and as I say, move towards a mainstream analytic political philosophy that's more welcoming, um, more helpful on these crucial issues. Okay, so it's divided into, um, neatly into what is it, eight sections, as you can see. So in the first one, to establish my analytic bona fides, you have to use letters and subscripts, you know, because otherwise people won't take it seriously. So I'm, I'm talking about G-justice and T-justice. What are these, you ask? Well, G-justice is justice for a particular group, and these groups could be um, voluntary groups, or, you know, a case that usually concern us more, non-voluntary groups, for example, members of particular classes, particular genders, particular races, and then T-justice represents particular theories of justice. And the question is, what is the relation between G and T-justice? And what I'm suggesting here is that G-justice should not be in opposition to social justice as a sort of overarching category, but the way the discussions of social justice have historically developed, particularly group, particular groups have been excluded. So that, in, in essence, the sort of um, paradigm subject for social justice theory, as it has developed, it's really developed as a sort of inheritance of what used to be called in the 19th century the social question. 
you know, a sort of balance between capital and labor, and you know, what was a sort of you know, fair and equitable distribution of the social product. And that is inherited um, in the mid-20th century by Rawls et al. insofar as the social is really located on a white male class axis. Should it be sort of for the left, should it be for the right? And of course, as we know, Rawls gives us a left version of social justice um, based on the American equivalent of social democracy. So as such, what used to be called the woman question, what in this country, you know, the Negro question, sort of you know, a Negro problem, these tend to be excluded. You're really talking about the working class and the working class as you know, conceived of as consisting of white mates. So when people say social justice, it's not usually the case that you know, gender justice, racial justice is taken into account. So I'm suggesting that we sort of formally recognize this and G-justice is then supposed to be a variety of justice targeted for particular groups, not in opposition to social justice, but to make the conception of social justice more inclusive. Okay, so I, I have that sort of in a first um, demarcation, G and T, and then I suppose there's sort of two main ways that G-justice can relate to T-justice. In the one, in sort of the first version, the, the presumption is that T-justice can be modified to accommodate the G in question. And the straightforward example here is feminist liberal theory. So the feminist liberal position is that liberalism is not problematic in practice, but liberalism has been dominated by males, it's been a liberalism that's patriarchal, so you get a particular drawing of the public-private boundary, which basically confines women to the domestic sphere, they're not in the public sphere where issues of justice are supposed to arise. So the family, patriarchal relations, all that stuff are then excluded from the ambit of justice. So if you're a feminist liberal, then what you're saying is we need to sort of recognize the shaping of liberalism by patriarchy. We then need to ask how to redraw the public-private distinction, and the discussion then sort of proceeds accordingly. Okay, so one approach, as I say, is that you try to reclaim um, the, the dominant varieties of T-justice for a particular group, and the clear-cut example there is feminist liberal theory. And then the alternative is to judge that the T, sort of in a set of T theories, are so contaminated by their origin that you basically can't do anything with them. So if you think, for example, of the radical feminist critique of male theory as a whole as being masculinist and as such contaminated by its origins, and you need to sort of you know, start afresh, or think of the original Marxist critique of the whole discourse of rights and justice as part of the alienated bourgeois sphere, or you think of you know, the post-colonial critique, that all these theories, they're contaminated by their global North, Western origins, and so forth. And we need to look at Native American values or pre-colonial African Asia. So that's the sort of radical alternative. And here I must confess, admittedly, I'm doing the shamefully reformist mainstream alternative, so don't um, rush to the exit, in which you know, the, the argument is going to be that you can, in fact, reclaim dominant existing T-theories for these products of group justice, and that once you sort of take into account the historical subordination of the group, it turns out you can get radical conclusions even from mainstream theories. Okay, so I then uh, move on to some discussions of race and racism. So I start with a section on the metaphysics of race, and there's a sort of a very lively discussion in analytic philosophy on this. 
So there are five or six main positions. There's the eliminativist position, race doesn't exist at all. There's the egalitarian um, realist position as distinguished from sort of classic racist um, realist position. So races do exist and they're in a hierarchy. So the egalitarian position obviously rejects this and says that the constructivist view is actually wrong. Races do exist after all, but there's no hierarchy. Then there's um, variants like um, a hybrid social natural position, a bifurcated ontological position. But my suggestion is going to be that for the purpose of racial justice, these different metaphysical positions don't actually make that much difference. The reason being that even if it's the case that races do not exist, neither as social constructs nor as biological entities, we can still say racialized social groups exist and on this basis, racialized social groups have been discriminated against, and so arguably, they then deserve racial justice. So the point of sort of looking at metaphysical issue was to say, it doesn't actually make that much difference for the normative issue of racial justice. Okay, I then go into a section on periodization. And the reason that's important is because there's all kinds of interesting work coming out in classics and medieval studies that I think critical philosophers of race need to pay attention to, and also mainstream political philosophers and political scientists. And the reason is that the conventional periodization of races in the post-war period has been race is a product of modernity. So you go back to the pre-modern epoch, you don't get race, you get maybe ethnocentrism, you get xenophobia, you get religious prejudices, but you don't get race. So race is a product of modernity, and the standard left account, race is a product of expansionist Euro European um, empires and so forth, and as a process, in the process of these expansion, Europeans sort of invent race as a category, and race then serves a rationalizing project. So it rationalizes conquest, exploitation, racial slavery, expropriation, etc. And this orthodox narrative is, as I say, increasingly coming under challenge. And in classics, there's an Israeli guy, an Israeli classicist guy called Benjamin Isaac, was a, a huge book, The Invention of Racism in Classical Antiquity. And, and the title alone is a sort of direct challenge to the orthodox view, because Isaac is saying, look, if you take a non-tendentious description of racism, and part of the argument is that you know, the sort of people who go with the modern periodization and work with a tendentious conception, if you detach race from color variation, if you detach race from continental origin, and just focus on racism as the idea of human groups in this hierarchy, then his argument is that the pioneering racist theorist of the Western tradition is none other than Aristotle. The reason being that you have a concept of natural slaves, and that concept is ethnically marked, it's linked to the Persians, that's racism. So from Isaac's point of view, the modern periodization is getting things absolutely wrong. It's sort of you know, conflating the issue of you know, when race comes into existence with the question of what modern race looks like. So if Isaac's position and those sort of like-minded scholars who will sort of take a similar view is going to vindicate it, it then suggests that race goes back to the origins, the conventional origins of Western civilization, and it then follows that race should be sort of far more central in our um, various disciplinary investigations than it has been. I mean, right now, race is sort of marginalized, just a, a small bunch of folks doing it. 
Isaac's claim is that race goes back to the start of the Western tradition. Race contaminates the Western tradition from the beginning. So critical philosophy of race, in particular philosophy, should be much more central to our investigation than it has. Now, of course, you, know, you could say, well, uh, Mills has a vested interest in this because, hey, this is great. This means that now the sort of scope of critical philosophy of race is far more than you know, previously thought. So the number of invitations that should be getting to give talks and conference and so on should be then vastly expanded. But apart from this vulgar material motive of mine, there is really a legitimate scholarly argument for it. So I really thought of direct people. This is work that people need to check out. Okay, so next section, challenge of ethnicity. So one argument is, look, racist metaphysics is complicated, it's contested. Why don't we go with ethnicity? Ethnicity is a straightforward category in that from in a sort of early origins of the human species, ethnicity emerges, okay, we're the good guys, we're down here in the valley, the bad guys are over on the other side of the mountain, us versus them. So ethnicity develops in a sense sort of, you know, coextensive with the origin of humanity. And the counter-argument is that even if it's true that you know, for thousands of years ethnic differentiation is a crucial thing, in the modern period, I argue, ethnicity is swamped by race, in the sense that different European tribes, different European nations, different European communities become subsumed under the sort of pan-European category of whiteness. And under this category, Europeans go into the Americas, to Australia, to Africa, etc., basically put these other people, so you know, um, thousands of different um, Native American civilizations, and you know, Australian Aboriginal civilizations, and so forth, and all these people become Indians, they become Negroes, they become Aborigines, so that race then becomes an overarching category of the modern world order. So though ethnicity continues to exist, in certain circles that continues to make a difference, and though, of course, there's sort of inter-imperial conflict between the various European empires, nonetheless, you could sort of see this sort of global division of humanity and whites positioned over everybody else. And there's this great historical episode, and every time I've given this paper, I've asked people in the audience, how many of you have heard of this episode? And usually it's only a sort of, you know, two or three hands, or sometimes none at all. Okay, here's the episode. Jump in the time machine, go back 100 years, 1919, post-World War I Versailles Conference. League of Nations being set up. We don't want this in a horrible sort of in a mass killing to ever happen again, but we know how successful they were on that. So you know, let's make sure things are done right this time. And at that time, as I don't have to tell you, most of the world is colonized by the European powers. There are very few independent nations of color. But one of those nations is Japan. And Japan goes to the conference and says, we need a racial equality clause in the League of Nations covenant. Now, this is going to be utterly uncontroversial, right? Because the standard narrative of modernity is that modernity ushers in the age of equality. We have the American Revolution, French Revolution, equality is a sort of crucial watchword of the epoch. And this, for God's sake, this is 1990. This is hundreds of years deep into modernity. We're not talking about the 15th or 16th century here. So we know that racial equality as a clause sort of in certain League of Nations covenant will be sort of greeted by all, what a great idea. And that, of course, is completely wrong. 
And what basically happens that the Anglo-Saxon nations, as they were then called, because even within white people there was a hierarchy, Anglo-Saxons are better than everybody else. So the six Anglo-Saxon nations, if you were wondering, United Kingdom, United States, Canada, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, they get together and they veto this. They say this is utterly crazy, no way this happened. So let me ask, show your hands, how many people have heard of this historical episode? Maybe a half a dozen in a room of, you know, I don't know, maybe 100, 200. So the question you need to ask yourself is, what does it say about the history you've been taught? What does it say about the sanitization of the record of the European power sort of a history of racism, colonial domination, that an episode as important as this should not have been part of your education? Anyway, so sort of taking that as a sort of wonderfully clear-cut and you know, discreet and sort of sharp indication of the actual normative state of affairs, what you have is a world normatively divided between you know, the equal races, which is white people, and then everybody else, which is people of color. So my suggestion then is that sort of given this fundamental you know, dichotomization in the global population, this raises obvious questions for political philosophy. So then in the next two, two sections, I say, well, what strategies should we follow in terms of you know, the dominant, going back to the first page, dominant T theories of, of justice, which, which sort of set of theories would be sort of most amenable, sort of bringing in issues of racial justice. And I suggest that communitarianism is going to have obvious problems insofar as you're basically using as your normative reference point the historical values of the community. And of course, sort of classic, you know, Michael Sandel critique of roles was that you know, this deontological liberal stuff is just very abstract and decontextualized, and your reference point needs to be the sort of actual conception of the good of the community. Well, how would that work for race? The actual community in Western nations has been a racially divided one, it's been a racially segregated one, so their conception of the good will obviously be shaped by that. So if you're using Sittlerstadt, as your reference point, it's going to be sort of contaminated with racial assumptions through and through. So with all its flaws, my argument is that the more appropriate T-theory is liberalism. And then the alternative in a liberalism of the right and a liberalism of the left, and Robert Nozick, sort of classic exponent of a liberalism of the far right, libertarianism, he actually has corrective justice as part of the three components of his theory of justice. So you might say, well, well great, we actually have, you know, the, we don't have to sort of try to force race in there. He actually has it as part of the theory. But the minor problem is that subsequent libertarians have not followed him in this. So we're now in an epoch, we're drowning in you know, companions and in you know, um, handbooks of all kinds. So there's a handbook to Nozick's um, Anti-State and Utopia, no mention of race. There's a handbook on libertarianism, you know, a few mentions here and there, but no systematic exploration of what libertarian principles should mean for the issue of racial justice. So my suggestion is that we need to work with the liberalism of the left, a liberalism that's sort of in the, in the um, ballpark of John Rawls and those around him, and the great value of this liberalism is that there's this upfront and central focus on what Rawls calls the basic structure. And the idea that people's lives are fundamentally shaped by the basic structure, so the basic structure needs to be just. So there's a great potential there for dealing with race, but the potential, I'm just checking the time here, has not been realized because the problem is across the liberal spectrum, from right to left, 
there's a sanitization of US history and of Western history more generally. So that nowhere in the 2,000 pages of Rawls's five books, nowhere in the sort of vast literature produced by Rawls' disciples and exegetes will you find any reference to the simple and obvious fact that the United States historically has been, and some of continues to be, a white supremacist state. The phrase white supremacy appears nowhere in this body of work. Even racism barely appears, let alone white supremacy. So you're, you're operating with a sanitized view of US and Western history, so then no surprise that you know, Rawlsians and you know, sort of left liberals generally do not deal with race any more than liberals of the right do. So my suggestion for addressing this very unfortunate state of affairs is that we operate with the concept of a racialized basic structure. So Rawls, you know, for those of you who have read his stuff know, Rawls' focus is on what he calls ideal theory, the justice theory for a perfectly just, well-ordered society, and the problem then is that the transition is never made from this body of work to non-ideal, ill-ordered societies, so the subject of racial justice never gets on the agenda. So my suggestion for remedying this is that we start off in non-ideal theory with the concept of what I've called ill-ordered societies. So Rawls works for a well-ordered society. I'm saying let's work with an ill-ordered society because the reality is that past the hunting and gathering stage, ill-ordered societies are all there is. It's not the case that there's a well-ordered society anywhere on the face of the planet. So all societies are going to be oppressive, whether an axis of gender or you know, um, ethnicity or religion or race or, or whatever, they're always going to be ill-ordered in some respect. That should have been a sort of central concept for any serious theory of social justice. And in my opinion, it's really an indictment of the existing analytic social justice body of work that you do not have something as elementary as a concept of ill-ordered societies, a term that I believe Carl Pittman and I coined in our um, 2007 book. <coughs> anyway, so the idea then is, with the concept of an ill-ordered society, you then have a revised thought experiment. So imagine yourself behind Rawls's veil of ignorance and know that when the veil lifts, you're going to enter into a white supremacist society. And the question you're then going to ask yourself is, am I going to be a member of the dominant race or am I going to be a member of one of the subordinated races? So that unlike the Rawlsian thought experiment, the subject of racial justice up front and central. And my claim would be that you can use the sort of same strategy of prudential reasoning on the conditions of ignorance, which gives you the equivalent of a moral choice, and you say, wow, the veil lifts, and I'm a black woman in the segregated suburbs of Southside Chicago, the veil lifts, and I'm a Native American on the reservation. These are pretty dire possibilities. Hmm, what should I do? I want to make sure that they're going to principles of justice, principles of corrective justice, that the society is going to sort of implementing, they're going to shape public policy, so that as far as possible, I'm going to um, have an equal chance with my fellow citizens who are of the privileged race. So my claim is that once you sort of bring in this alternative framing of the thought experiment, you can get quite radical conclusions out of a very mainstream and respectable apparatus. So I hope you'll um, see that's a project worth pursuing and join with me in a struggle for racial justice. Thank you.